So when we uh, uh, look at John chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. My goal was rather ambitious to get 18 and into 19, but it's a, that's it's really going to be pushing it to get through the what's going on. And you did 18, and then Jim did 18. Now yeah. I'm going 18. You did 18 when you were supposed to do 17. I did 18 through verse 11. So right. Jim. Because right. that was what you gave me, and then you went and taught it. And so I did mm-hmm. it again, but I did it from a different perspective. Yeah, he did it from a football So now we're going to do 18 again. Yeah, yeah. well. Um, I, mean, I, I understand how you're trying to, <laughs> to squeeze all this into till, till December, but. Sure. It sounds like, it sounds like you're ahead of schedule and don't know it. Right. Right. So um, when we uh, look at the first 11 verses of uh, chapter 18, we see the majestic surrender of Jesus um, and the most significant words um, in the section are the words made flesh sounding his name. I am. And inside of he's inside of his creation and Jesus says this. And this is not a traditional arrest where there's this a show of overwhelming force and they arrive to and he's and the suspect surrenders um, to it. <clears throat> And they take him in with as little conflict as possible because Jesus said that I could call down legions of angels, 12 legions of angels in Matthew 26, 53, um, and that Jesus is not being overtaken. This is not a traditional arrest. He's not defeated. He's not captured. Um, So why does the declaration of the creator Jesus stating his name, I am, result in the physical repulsion um, of all those around him, violence to those who came to do violence against him. And it makes us clear to us that the evil men, and it makes it clear to us as well, that the arrest of Jesus was an act of love. The, look at the text. Jesus says, I am, twice. He doesn't say, I am he. Your Bible should have the word he in italics because it was not what Jesus said. He said, I am. Um, the first time Jesus said, I am, a shockwave of sound uh, from the creator's voice, uh, once more speaking into his creation, and it, it, it pushes everybody back. So why does he say this twice, and why is there a different result from the first time to the second time? Could Jesus have kept this up all night, just kept saying, I am, and pushing everybody down with the shockwave of his voice? The creator speaking his name in creation? I think he could have. I think he could have continued all night. But this is a physical, visible validation to those who stand armed to the teeth with the latest military technology, ready to take him down, that you have no power over me except that which is granted to you by my Father. Exactly. So inside these 11 verses, there are three deep Christian doctrines that are on display here. We have the doctrine of substitution, where Jesus is surrendered to death, for us in our place, we have the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that he's controlling every aspect of these events, even though people around him may not even recognize it. And then we have the authority, the doctrine of the authority of Christ, where Jesus says later in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, it was also, there was also a culmination of a prophecy in Psalm where, you know, I mean, if, it, if they didn't shrink back, you know, in Psalm... Psalm 27, it says that, you know, when, when, hold on, when the wicked advance against me and devour me into my enemies and my foes, they stumble and fall. And that was referring to the, so the prophecy, when they fell back, had to, that was 
as it comes true. Very good point. I like that charisma. Thank you. So there's so there's all types of things going on here. Um, we um, see this idea of substitution. You can look through your notes. Um, there's some a lot of a lot of notes and footnotes in your notes that got emailed out this week. We don't need to go into all of those. But the idea, of course, is Jesus is in our place. He's taken our place for the sin that we and the punishment we deserve. It's part of our confession, right? That we justly and rightly deserve your present eternal punishment for our sins, our crimes against you, against your kingdom. Um, and then as a result, God is able to take Christ and stand in our place. And then we're able to transfer that righteousness that he has to us because of what he does for us. And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign, um, which means God is in complete control of his universe. Um, and he determines the outcomes of all things according to his will and his purposes, his wisdom at work in our lives and the lives of people around us. And he has absolute authority. An absolute rule over all of his creation. Everything, everything must obey him. Whether it's a, a person or someone in a position, or if it's the weather, which Jesus commands, or if it's his voice and pushing them back, fulfilling a prophecy like Charisma's speaking of, making his enemies fall back. All those things are part of what he does. He controls and guides events in our lives um, for his glory um, and for our good. So God is constantly in work in us, even when in the moment of uh, the pains of life and the trials of life, we may not clearly see what he is doing. He's still working a greater purpose beyond what we can recognize. And so God does not adjust his plan according to the events of human history, um, nor does he wait to see what people will decide um, before he decides what he will do, though he does respond differently when people pray. Um, and when people do not pray, when people obey or disobey, God's decrees govern all of history. And we see that all through it. And that's one of the things that separates our faith and our God from all the other gods of the world is the prophetic. It makes us so very unique. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Joseph gets uh, sold into slavery by his brother. Bad thing. But when he finally reveals himself, them, he actually says it three times, God sent me. It wasn't you. Yeah, and what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's and that really is the, the stance that we as believers, um, because of these great doctrines that are on display here, the stance that we should be able to take as we approach life and events come upon us, in our minds come upon us, and God's reality planned for us. And it's important for us to try and see that, to learn from it. Yes, sir. Even though it was God's plan, those brothers sinned. Oh, yes. God, yeah. God took that sin and made it into something graceful. They were groveling before Joseph at the end, of, you know, when Jacob died. Oh, what are you going to do to us now? The dad's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're not exactly what you call shining examples of, of faith. But uh, Joseph is. Yes. You know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but everything that you've just said is absolutely true. God is sovereign. But if he's that sovereign, what does that do to quote our free will? <laughs> Perry's favorite subject. Um, <laughs> but uh, Because we're, 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 we're called, we're chosen, we're, we're destined. Uh, and thank God we are, because if I had anything to do with it, I'd slip and fall. Yes. Uh, uh, two, uh, 20 times a day. Um, so, you know, if you look at 
this interplay of God's sovereignty and, and these guys coming out to arrest him, um, did they have free will? Well, God says, I've placed enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, so that there's going to be this enmity between Satan's offspring and Jesus' offspring. You know, uh, all the way down through history, we see it right today. Uh, and God says, I place that enmity between those two groups. So what kind of freedom is there? Uh, those that belong to Satan, there's some mystery here. Why doesn't God save everybody? And, you know, that's the, the critical question. Yeah. Well, that's a critical question that, that is brought up against. And that, and that really is the crux of what we're studying today is the choice. Is it, And the question is, um, who do you say I am? And that's the question of Jesus. And today we're going to look at Peter, a pilot, uh, and the Pharisees and how they address this whole question. And that is a question of each person, uh, just us individually and those in our lives. That is really what it comes down to is who do you say Jesus is and what do you do with that information? Um, so um, that does include when we call on him to save us, knowing that God is sovereign and controlling, giving us fuller understanding of all the doctrines. It gives us comfort and security um, in difficulties and temptations. So I want to give you, um, do you all know what, uh, there's this common thing, Savannah would probably know it. Um, John probably knows it. You may know it. But it's called Easter eggs in movies. Are you familiar with this? Okay, yeah. So, so an Easter egg in a movie is something that the writers and producers and directors will tuck away inside the film that if you're just watching the movies, it goes across the screen. You don't realize something's happened. But if you stop it, you slow it down, you zoom in, you'll see something. Um, Easter eggs are these hidden little gems referencing other aspects of the story. Um, you can go on YouTube and, and pick a movie. It's mainly in science fiction stuff. I, I see them in Star Wars movies. I love Star Wars. There's a whole genre of Easter eggs in Star Wars movies. You can go through and it'll, it'll say, well, you see this flag over here and that ties into this movie over there and that represents this character over there. So that's the Easter egg. It's like a hidden little gem in the story. So I want to give you an Easter egg here in our passage. Easter egg number one. Um, it's a subtle detail woven in the fabric of the story. And unless you're paying attention, it will run right past you. And when we look at this passage and we, um, the combined passages, and we look at what Jesus says, this shock wave that he speaks and forces everyone down around him, that is um, also found in passages, Revelation 16, 16, 19, 14, and in uh, 1921, Isaiah 63, 6. And I believe that they are, all these passages are describing a future event um, when the Messiah King, the Mashiach Nagid, when he comes in all his glory and he approaches the risen conquering king full of vengeance and wrath from on high to uh, execute judgment against his enemies and against the enemies of his people and his bride. And that those passages describe something very similar that we see here in this passage where the words of his mouth repel the enemies of his person. And that's what happens, I believe, at the end of time when he says he comes down and by the sword of his mouth, he slays his enemies. And there's some really cool stuff in your notes. You can look at that um, on your own. And it's quite fascinating, the connections between Armageddon and the modern state of Jordan and the city of Petra that you may have remembered from the second Indiana Jones movie. Where, yeah, where they're going through. Yeah, it, that, it's, that's the place. But it's, speci it's specified in prophecy as a place that uh, Antichrist will have no control or authority over, and is specified as a place of refuge for the remnant at that time. And 
it also is fascinating. It fits this idea that the, uh, the, the at this battle, the blood's up to the horse's bridle and it's for 1600 stadia, which is a Roman measurement of length, which to us would be like 200 miles. It's fascinating that the 200 miles is the distance from Armageddon to Petra. It's just fascinating. Yes, sir. Paul says in Ephesians that the only offensive part of your armor, the whole armor of faith, the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon. And when you look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the only thing he's got is the words from Deuteronomy. And he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it repels and uh, overcomes all the evil one. You've got the same authority. You've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you exercise that, and you are invincible against all the powers of darkness. Yeah, and I commonly tell people, especially young Christians who are uh, feel um, oppressed by uh, demonic thoughts or spirits or things come in their lives, and it typically comes at night, right? That's when the evil one is most active in the dark, right? And I will tell them, here's a little verse, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And in that and that's, I tell people, I say, say those words out loud when you feel these things happening. And like you're saying, it pushes back those forces of darkness. They cannot come against you in that place. So check that out for yourself. Make your own decision about that. I did also include a link in the video to show the effect of a shockwave. There was an explosion in Beirut, Lebanon on August 4th, 2020. that was captured on multiple videos. I got two links in there. And just to give you an idea of what a shockwave can do. Let's move on to uh, the betrayal of Jesus in John 18, 10. Then Simon Peter uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Put your sword back in its sheath, Jesus said to Peter. Uh, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And I'd like to bring a principle out for us here from these words of Jesus, that you must go through the night if you want to see the beauty of a sunrise. And you must endure the day with all its trials and temptations if you want to witness the awe of the sunset and we all go through life and the different joys we have in our lives, the different trials and temptations we have all to reach our eternal destination. And Jesus had to go through the agony, humiliation, the wrongful treatment of the crucifixion to redeem the world and see us with him in glory. The next phase of the chapter follows a different episodes that are happening all at the same time. And uh, they're linked one together and the, uh, the first trial of Jesus happens before Annas, and the second, uh, and the second is a denial of Peter. So if we look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 18. We look at it like this. It says, 18, then the band of soldiers with its commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be better if one man died for the people. Now, the backstory here, just so you remember, is that Caiaphas ran the show. Um, he is really the power broker in the temple in Jerusalem, although the Romans saw Caiaphas as a threat. And so they forced him to relinquish his position of authority. And this imposition of Gentile authority over temple affairs was highly offensive to religious uh, Jewish sensibilities. Nevertheless, Rome had the muscle, um, so Caiaphas had to relent. So um, in a workaround, Caiaphas became the kingmaker, and five different members of Caiaphas' family held the head role in the temple, all the while deferring always to Caiaphas on important matters. Do you understand what I'm saying? So even though 
dare I say it, <laughs> even though someone may sit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk, there may be someone else in the wings that actually tells them what's important to do as they make decisions. Comprehende, amigo? C. C. Yes, capiche. So, um, so Annas is the son-in-law, and so he is not in the family. Okay, you picking up on this? He married into the family. Okay, so there's another layer going on here. So the first thing to note is the time of day of these events. Um, this is in the middle of the night. This violates Jewish law. All right. Now you got to remember these are the people who are charged with making sure the law is preserved and enforced and enacted. And what are they doing? Their lust for power and control is completely laying bare all their hypocrisy for the world to see. So let's move down to verses 19 to 24 to finish off on the interaction of Jesus and with uh, Annas. And so Jesus is before the high priest in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered. I always taught in the synagogues and at the temple where all the Jews came together. And I said nothing in secret. Why are you asking me? Ask those who heard my message. Surely they know what I said. And then Jesus, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby slapped him in the face and said, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, testifies to what I said wrong. But if I spoke correctly, why did you strike me? And then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So let's back this up and, and sort of pick out what's going on here. So what is going on here? First, Annas is... Um, Approaching the determination of guilt and innocence without the testimony of witnesses. Now, um, Annas questions Jesus directly, asking him directly, seeking to catch him in something. And this breaks the standard of law. Um, the judge is directly addressing the witness and seeking words of self-incrimination and self-admission of guilt. And Jesus, in verse 20, it appears to me he's attempting to draw Annas back into the realm of Levitical jurisprudence by requesting that Annas bring witnesses to his teachings to offer testimony. The truth is determined in the mouths of two or three witnesses, is what the Old Testament tells us. So uh, Jesus is uh, misinterpreted, as I think, as being disrespectful to Annas. Um, and when he's actually, what Jesus is trying to do is attempt to draw the court back into the standards of the court. And in verse 24, at this point, Annas appears to be at the limit of his abilities, and, uh, and no doubt the fix is already in, but Annas is told by the big guy that it would be easy to close, uh, it'd be easy case to close, and he's unable to deliver the goods. So Annas passes Jesus off to the real power of the temple, Caiaphas. The principle for us here is that... also asked, tells him, I've got witnesses. I mean, I can, I can do this. I got all my disciples out there, and it reminds me of the guy who said... Why don't you ask him yourself? Yeah, the blind man. Yeah. But Jesus said, I have all the witnesses I, I want here. I mean, if we want to do a real court case here, you bring in your witnesses and I will bring in all mine. But just like all kangaroo courts, they don't. Uh, the, the, the fix, fix is, is in. in. Yeah. You don't get to bring your witnesses. And we see the, we're seeing that played out today. Yeah. You don't get to bring in your witnesses. We only get to bring in ours, and not just here, but many times before Pilate. And they had already told some to create a rabble 
and to, and to say lies. Yeah. And so the fix is in on the this fix is in. case. Yeah. And what you're saying is it's legal proceedings. And Jesus is going, I've got witnesses. Why don't you bring them in? If you've got them, bring yours in. I, yeah. I never did anything. Exactly. You're not going to find me guilty in the law. Yes, sir. Um, what people don't realize is that Israel has not had a king for 500 years. So the authority has devolved mm -hmm. to the high priest. And so we have an identity competition going on here. Here is finally the first king of the Jews for 500 years. Uh, being put into question by uh, what they've had as, as sort of a scaffold uh, of authority that has devolved to the high priest. And, yeah. Uh, so I think that needs to be understood as well. You've got the real king um, finally coming uh, and put to trial by uh, a scaffold. Yeah. And I think that shows up when, when we get to Pilate and what he goes through and how he approaches Jesus and what's going on. So the principle for us to remember, I think, in this section is that the devil does not play fair. <laughs> yeah, the devil did not play fair with Jesus, and the world will not play fair with us, okay? And the student is not above the teacher. So we must not be surprised when a sinful, broken, fallen person acts like a sinful, broken, fallen person and treats us unfairly. We should not be surprised by that. We should be prepared for that. And we need to be able to embrace it with grace. And so the same time that Jesus is finally at the point of his public ministry, where he's openly declaring himself as the king and Messiah, Peter, the brash Peter, the brave Peter, the strong, full of bravado for three years, so desiring to be seen with Jesus and declare how close he is to Jesus, is now reduced to a whimpering man, intimidated by a little servant girl let's go back up to verses 15 through 18 and 25 to 27 and we'll talk about peter's first denial 15 now when simon peter and the other disciple were following jesus since that disciple was known by the high priest so he also went into jesus with jesus into the courtyard of the high priest but peter stood outside at the door and then the disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought peter in verse 17 at this, the servant girl watching the door said to Peter, aren't you also one of this man's disciples? Oh, I am not, he answered, because it was cold. The servants and the officers were standing around a coal fire they'd made to keep warm. And Peter was also there standing with them, warming himself. Peter's second and third denial. Simon Peter, verse 25, was still standing and warming himself. So they asked him, Hey, aren't you also one of his disciples? And he denied it. And he said, oh, I am not. In verse 26, and one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And Peter denied it once more. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Now, this also gives us evidence to the last teaching I gave you about the size of the crowd. This person was there in the garden, witnessed the slaying with the sword and the healing of the high priest servant and was able to go, hey, you were the guy with the sword that was cutting ears off in the garden, right? So let's make this an application for us. I don't want us to condemn Peter, okay? Um, I do want us to learn from Peter. So what, would, what do you see here? that could be instructive to us. 
when you look at Peter as an example to follow or as an example to avoid, how do you react when people ask you questions like this? Maybe you don't. Hopefully you would answer that the right way, but I think under pressure, when your life may be at stake, right? I think you cave. Yeah. Most, most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, we would shrink back, right? We would I think cave. I said last week, I got a pocket full, a, a bag full of years. <laughs> You've cut off? <laughs> and it wasn't life or death situations, it was more pride. Yeah. I had to win. I got a whole bag full of ears. Yeah. That's my modus operandi. I'm guilty of that myself. You know, a mind convinced against itself is of the same opinion still. Convinced against its will is of the same opinion still. Let me ask you, let me just, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you squirm for a little bit, okay? I think it's part of my job. Maybe you don't laugh at the joke that somebody else enjoys. Maybe you don't join in the conversational gossip about someone else. Or maybe the uh, look on your face gives away your displeasure and the loud one in the group confronts you and you are intimidated. So do you shrink back? Do you speak up? Can a situation like this be an opportunity to share your faith? Um, Discussion about someone's sinful, broken relationship because of drugs or unfaithfulness, can that be an opportunity for you to speak some words of truth in that person's life or into the person who's gossiping about it and tell them the biblical standard and find a way to wedge your faith into that conversation? Um, what about someone in a group that's discussing a relative who is planning a homosexual marriage ceremony? Do you speak up in that and say anything at all? Or do you just keep silent and silence is approval and you don't speak? So are you silent? Is your silence a denial of what you know to be true? A denial of association with the one who declared one man and one woman make a marriage? Those are really tough self-examination questions. Yes, ma'am. And it all depends on where you are. If you're going to cause a big uproar, if you speak, sometimes it's best to be silent and not say anything because I could have started almost a war. <laughs> <laughs> Let the battle begin. And I thought about that because I really wanted to say something and people could see my face. Yes. And I says, it's not the time. I'm not speaking. You just me how you want. And so I didn't speak up, but I didn't speak out either. Right. And I felt guilty about it. But then everybody calls me afterwards to ask me. And that's the same thing. You know, just one-on-one instead of the whole group. So do you think, would, would it have been possible for you to, I don't know what your situation is, you don't have to divulge it, but just for everyone to know. So when I say, we've all been in situations like that. And you know that you know what you want to say. and You want to pull the sword out and cut the ear off. Um, but so then, is there an opportunity to come back to that person at some other, a few minutes later, one-on-one and speak to them? So it's not an incident. So it's not a position of pride. It can be a point of actual possible intercession. Because if you do, if you do bring that up in that, in that setting, automatically, I think their defenses go up. They're not going to back down. 
So you're not gonna you're not gonna achieve what your ultimate goal is, which is to try and bring this person into a, alliance with the truth and admission of the truth and, and, and like that. So what what, what happened mine, then? Mine was the one on one and I right now don't have certain friends and then sometimes I and the other ones I do. So it's my opinion is what they said that cut me down. Yes. Were you going to say something, Chuck? Um, yeah, just Proverbs says, answer a fool. Yes. According to his folly. And then it says, answer not a fool. According to his folly. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what's the old saying? Is the, uh, the, the, the dumbest man in the room is the one who gets into a fight with a fool? So, and there's that too. I just like that tree to be on. So sometimes you do have, you speak up and then other times it's yeah, and I think that's where we have to, the ultimate, uh, at the end of, I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase, the last sentence of your lesson is that in all these questions, it is a complete reliance on the Holy Spirit to know uh, what to what to do and what to say and which person you should be addressing in those situations. I'm going to give you a second Easter egg, uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 27, chapter 18, Peter denied it once more and immediately the rooster crowed, right? We all know the story, right? So historians will tell us that at this time in Jerusalem, it was illegal to own or house a rooster in the city of Jerusalem. Hmm, that's interesting, you Christians. I think I found a flaw in your story, right? Okay. So um, is it a flaw in the central event of the entire biblical content? I mean, the crucifixion of Jesus is the point of the story from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, right? So... There are two options here. One option is this, and I know this will shock you. Somebody may have disobeyed the HOA rules. <laughs> I'm just saying they could have kept a little small flock of chickens with one rooster. I mean, it could have happened, right? Now, the other thing is this, uh, just so you know. So if you want to say that would never happen, then here's the other way out. The cock crow was also a term referring to the, um, to the bugle call made by the Roman soldiers to signal the changing of the guards throughout the city. So it could be either one of those items. It could have been a literal rooster or it could have been just this signal. Now, here's the thing about it. Let's go back to one of our doctrines in, the, in this passage, the sovereignty of God. Either way, this little detail, whether it's a rooster for sure, or if it's a, a man holding a, a piece of brass horn and, and blowing through it, either way, it shows the prophetic command of our Lord. It, it shows his ability to control all of nature. It shows uh, whether it's the results of the barn animal, the yard bird, or if it's a Roman soldier. Uh, either one will require perfect timing, absolutely perfect timing for this to happen the way it did. For Jesus to stand there, for Peter to see him, for the person to approach Peter, and then for Peter to respond with the denial. And then the, the sound in his ear, and he leaves weeping bitterly because he realized he has done what he said he would never do. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And just remember that also, let that give comfort to you that all the events of our lives are in that same woven control of God as he's controlling every aspect of everything that goes on with us. Of course you may. It actually took that that to happen for the rooster before he realized that he did what he that he'd never do. I just, that just came to me when you said that. Like, I never thought about that, but that's when 
he realized that not the first, the second time, or the third even, was when that rooster crowed that he realized what he had done. Yes. And I think, you know, that you remind me, when you say that, you remind me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what, um, the Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany, who stood up against Hitler, whose famous quote is that when they, they came for the trade unionists, I was not a trade unionist. And when they came for the communists, I was not a communist. And when they, they came for the homosexuals, I was not a homosexual. And then when they finally came for me, there was no one left to stand up for me. And so that's kind of how we are in our lives. We don't even see these things happening to us because we're just so immersed in it. You know, a fish doesn't know he's in water until <laughs> you take him out, right? It's just the way life is, right? So the next trial of Jesus, Jesus is sent from the religious authorities in, in John's account of these, um, to the imperial authorities of Rome and the enemies of God, the Romans, the hated Roman Empire, um, and God's Messiah to seek to rid themselves of the Son of God, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is another level of earthly authority that confronts the divine sovereignty of Jesus, the King and Messiah, who is completely on point. Don't miss this. Jesus is completely on task. He's on mission. He is on purpose. He is right in step with the will of his father. So Jesus is um, designed and he is completely aligned to get to one place at this point. His focus is completely on reaching that cross and sacrificing himself. So as his mission is the will to do nothing that will stop him from the father, the redemption of his creation through his self-sacrifice for us. So I'd like to cover the interactions of Jesus and Pilate through the remainder of the chapter 18. And then I would like to try and get into 19. We'll see how we're going to do. Uh, I think it's a fascinating progression of what we see in Pilate and his reaction and assessment of Jesus when he's first introduced to this, this character, Jesus, and how he reacts to him and his final decision about Jesus. So I've divided their time together into nine sections, nine little vignettes and interactions between Jesus and Pilate. So the first one is in John 18, uh, chapter 28, uh, 18, verse 28, excuse me. Let's go 18, uh, 28 to 32. Are y'all following with me? Are we tracking? You got it? And then they led Jesus away from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Now, but by now it was early morning and the Jews did not enter the praetorium to avoid being defiled over and being able to uneat the Passover. Now in your uh, notes, there's a footnote here, footnote number eight. And I need to draw your attention to this. You need to make your own decisions about this, all right? Um, this is a double Sabbath. What in Greek is called a mega Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. There are actually two Sabbaths when Jesus is, is crucified. Are you with me so far? Which day of the week is traditionally the Sabbath day? Oh, good. Saturday. We're all in agreement. Okay. So then if you have a double Sabbath, the day before Saturday would be the other Sabbath, the mega Sabbath, the high Sabbath. Okay. Which what's the day before Saturday is Friday. So if Jesus has to be crucified and he can't be on the cross on a Sabbath because it would defile the city, Jesus would have to be killed on a Thursday. I know it's not good Friday. It's actually good Thursday, which means all the events we're studying right now didn't take place on Thursday. It took place on Wednesday. I know you've got to, you got to do your own research on this, and make your own decision. I know we're not going to change church tradition. The calendar is not going to change at, at, at Easter. I promise. Yeah. But anyway, but you can, it's interesting. It's, it's a great little thing. It's in there. You can't deny it. It's in the text. 
It is a double Sabbath. It goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 22 and how that works. And there's some great stuff in your notes. Yes, sir. Well, he celebrates the Passover disciples before the Passover. Yes. And do you, why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would he pass, do the Passover early? Why? He was a Passover lamb. If he didn't do the Passover early, he'd have been arrested before Passover. We wouldn't have the Lord's Supper. He wouldn't have been able to give those words of comfort to his disciples. There's all kinds of things at play here. It's, fa- it's fascinating to dig into it. These are the Easter eggs, people. I don't write the, I don't write the mail, I just deliver the letters, okay? All right, so verse 19. So Pilate went out with them and asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? In verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And then Pilate says, 31, you take him and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. We are not permitted to execute anyone. Ooh, this is getting really serious. Yeah, the Jews replied, the fix isn't in. This is a completely fair trial, I promise. Let's hurry up, though. Uh, 32, and every man gets a fair trial before his hanging, I promise, okay? This was to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. So verse 28 is is very rich in chapter 18. Here we have those who they spend their entire lives policing the people to ensure that all the laws, every little jot, every little tittle of the law is kept. And they approach their, their sworn enemy, the oppressive enemy, the Roman Empire. They go to this person to kill an innocent man which by definition is murder and strictly forbidden by the law of God. And these keepers, these protectors of the temple and all those rules, they approach the enemy of all Israel at this time, the oppressive Roman empire to execute Karata, Daniel 9, 26, through the power of the state, their rival as they approach the power that had the authority to bring to completion the entire plot to kill Jesus. The hypocritical religious leaders remain at a distance just outside the defiling perimeter of the Roman official compound so that they will be able to participate in the upcoming Passover celebrations. I mean, just, the hypocrisy is just dripping here. It's unbelievable. So Pilate must have been, you know, he must have seen this behavior and realized what they're doing. They're calculating All this is going on. And in his mind, he has to be thinking truly, what is going on here with this strange out-of-town rabbi who who doesn't have the right credentials, but I've been hearing about him. He's got this people that follow him. And now there's this conflict between the religious uh, Jewish elites and this commoner and the people in mass. So let's apply this to our lives. Sadly, we, too many times, Act just like those who plotted to kill Jesus. Because we refuse to defile ourselves by stepping into the territory of the Roman Gentiles. And at the same time, we walk right up to the edge of the sin. And then we peer across the fence at the sin. And we maintain our technical purity. But we are not crossing that line. But in our hearts, we are defiling ourselves by what we see sometimes or what we say or don't say in our language. You know, language is one of those big things. We will say so many Christian cuss words. I know Pastor Marine brought it up the other day. People say holy this, holy that. 
And he, 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 he reprimanded me and actually took that to heart. I was at the shop. We we're working on something. And I said, oh, holy. Yeah, let me talk about that. And I stopped myself. I mean, but he, he pricked my conscience that, yeah, you're right. Only God is holy. I can't say holy anything except for God. And that's how we are. I mean, uh, I had a, I was sent a podcast to a buddy of mine recently for a sermon I heard. He likes listening to sermons too. And he said, I hope this guy didn't say fricking in his sermon like that last pastor I listened to on a podcast. I was like, yeah, I guess that's not really right, is it? And that's, that's a word that just drives me crazy. How about this? We refuse to watch a sexually charged rated R movie, but we indulge in sexual innuendo in a romantic comedy. And we do. Or, or can we maintain our legal status by never actually engaging in murder of another person, but we secretly boil with this inner rage and we just um, we imagine all these plot twists in life that would humiliate and harm this person that really gets on our nerves. And Jesus says not to be that way. He says, you know, my standard's a little higher than what you're realizing. Um, so a person, let's say a person will never watch a pornographic movie, but they can still be bound up in lust. Are you with me? So these things don't have to display themselves in our lives. They can still be holding us back spiritually in growth and being able to apply ourselves to others in the Christian life. Well, how about this? A person who's not a thief, but they secretly desire all the possessions of another person. Wow. Yeah. Jesus calls us to a life of contentment, right? And our culture is constantly alluring us with this desire to what we do not possess. Remember that the devil, remember this now, the devil does not play fair, right? He doesn't play fair with you either. And so only by the desired indwelling of the Holy Spirit and yielding the control of our lives to the authority of the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to stand against any of the attacks of our enemy. Now, Pilate goes right. Yes, sir. Oh, you talk about coveting. Um, just listen watch TV, listen how many times you hear the word deserve. Oh, yeah. deserve. What you deserve. Oh, I deserve commercial it. Commercial sites. Drive me nuts. Yeah, I, you, know, you do know what you deserve, right? Yeah. I don't want what I His eternal and present punishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what <clears> you deserve. I'm about um, a lesson my daughter gave me one time. Mm-hmm. I won't say how old she is now, but at the time she was about six. And I had sent her to bed. It was eight o'clock. And then I turned something on uh, the TV. She came out of her bedroom and came down the hall. I didn't want her to see what was on. It was eight thirty or nine. It might have even been nine. I said, "Hey, Kelly, you have to go to bed," because I didn't want her to see it. Uh, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't an awful show. It's just an adult show. And so I put her back to bed, and she came wandered down the hall. The more I said, she knew there was something on there. She wanted mm-hmm. to see it too. And I ended up getting angry. And finally took her back and put her in bed. And I and the Lord convicted me and said, why are you so angry at her? Um, and I'm fast forwarding now. I think you got the point. And I decided if she can't watch it, I can't watch it. Yeah. Which was... It wasn't a, a hard and fast rule for me. It was a check. And how many husbands look at their wives as a hindrance or a nag when in fact it's a godly check on your bad behavior? 
but we want to talk about their bad behavior instead of address the real issue. Yeah. And so uh, Kelly became a check for me. And it was a good check for me to watch what was more appropriate and make a real conscious decision about, should I really be watching this? Yeah. And it doesn't mean I can't watch it. I'm not legalistic. It just means, should I? What we ought to do is really more about what God is about than what we can do. Yeah. And then I, I fast forward now to a more current thing. I'll get all over my grandkids for playing video games. What am I? But I will accept in my own life the wastes of time that I do. Yeah. But I, your but, leisure. But video games are taboo because they just waste so much time. Okay, fine. Yeah. You may be correct, but what are, what are you doing in your life that's wasting time that you don't hold the same standard for yourself? Pastor Perry? Talking about uh, what judges us and what's interesting about this story in John is that every place that Jesus is taken for trial, it turns around and he becomes the judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pilate turns out to be just a creep in this story, and he withers and he withers and he withers before the sovereignty and the majesty and the goodness of Jesus. Um, and so in every in every instance of chapter 18, every time Jesus is put on trial, the, the tables are turned and Jesus shows his yeah, and authority, and also His grace and goodness. Yeah, no, do you, it's hard to it's hard to corner Jesus. Do you had something, Rosemary? Well, I was going to say since we moved down here, we've noticed the number of lawyer advertisements on TV. <laughs> you need a couple of good lawyers. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. My husband can quote every one. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have something else to say? I'm sorry, you were going to speak earlier. No. Okay. Um, so Pilate goes right to business in verse 29. He's asking, what is the category of this crime, this man you brought before me? What has he really done? And the Pharisees immediately sense it with the answer, a category of crime? Well, well of course he's committed a crime. He has to be a criminal. Why is, well, we're not, we wouldn't bring him here if he wasn't a criminal. He's got to be a criminal. That's why he brought him to you. And then Pilate sees this as a, I think, he sees it as a squabble between temple leadership. And so there's this non-credentialed rabbi who's popular among the people, and he's threatening to take and usurp their leadership role. And Pilate is a leader. He knows what that's like. He knows there's corruption. He knows it's common in organizations, especially large public organizations. Uh, so why would the temple be any different than any Roman organization of government post that he's affiliated with? I mean, you put people and power and money together, and you can bring out the worst in human nature. We still see it today. So Pilate tries to send the issue back to the day, to the temple and push it back to the delegation and says, y'all go back and punish Jesus. But they want blood. And only Rome has the power to execute a man. So Jesus stands before Pilate, part two, verses 33 through 38. Pilate went back into the praetorium, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And 34 are you asking this on your own, Jesus asked, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? 36, Jesus marveled, excuse me, answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. 
But now my kingdom is not of this realm. And then Pilate in 37, then you are a king, Pilate says. And Jesus responds this way. You say that I am a king, Jesus answered. For this reason, all you see this happening before you, this reason, all this transpiring here in these hours, this reason I was born and have come into the world, not of the world, into the world, to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And 38 is probably some of the saddest words in the entire story of, of the, in my mind, of Pilate. His answer is a question. What is truth? And Pilate asks, and then he turns and walks away. So Pilate is getting nervous here. So the Romans, remember, remember the culture here. Rome is a superstitious culture, right? They got all kinds of gods. They worship everything. You know, they got, they got through making gods to, you know, to actual gods. And then they started making gods to emotions. You know, you have the God of love, events, the God of war, you have the God of the weather. So they're just, they're just clinging to all these many gods. And they actually, in their stories, they believe that the gods can come down and interact with them. Remember Hermes and, and Paul, and was it Barnabas or one of them were on a, on a trip somewhere and they go, oh, you're the gods, you're this, you've healed this guy. And they think they're the gods come down. And so they think that the gods can come down and mate with women. They can bear children. So this accusation that this might be a king, he's been born a king, brought him out of this world. He has a kingdom out of this world. This is really starting to strike a chord with Pilate. And so in the common vernacular of the day, his spidey senses are up, to quote Spider-Man. And this will be uh, exacerbated by a note from Pilate's wife during all these proceedings, when she tells him, Pilate, please, I've suffered many things during the night and drink because this man have nothing to do with him. And furthermore, Pilate hears Jesus say these words, I was born a king. Pilate was not born into his role of leadership. Pilate had to lobby for it the Roman Empire. He had to go through bureaucracy of the Roman Empire. He had to probably bribe officials. And along the way, he then had to fend off everyone who approached a threat to his power for his little throne once he'd achieved it. But I think the saddest exchange is at verse 38 when Pilate asked, what is truth? And there he walks away, turns his back on and walks away from the very embodiment of truth that's before him. And, you know, many people are that way today. They, um, they walk away from Jesus. They don't want to hear what he has for them. And uh, Jesus, uh, and then he continues on in part three to me, verse 38 and 40. Um, and having said this, Pilate, he went out again to the Jews and he told them, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom that I release to you one prisoner at the Passover. So then, do you want me to release? To you, the king of the Jews. In verse 40, not this man, but they shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Now, this is going to be the biggest Easter egg of the entire lesson. Okay. Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas is his name. Are you with me so far? Jesus Barabbas. Son, Bar, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Abba, Abba is the father. I mean, you can't make this up, all right? You got, you got, you got, let's walk down this trail a little bit, okay? In Leviticus 16.10, the New Living Translation says this, the other goat 
the scapegoat chosen by lot to be sent away will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. And when it is sent away into Azarel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. This will blow your mind. This is part of a much grander vision. All that God is doing in this event. This moment, this day, this is the seminal event of all human history, of all the purposes of creation. As the creator executes the ultimate purpose of all of history, the redemption of his creation, he comes to the point when you look in the Torah, there's these particular Levitical laws that are all woven in there. It's this worship system given by God to Moses. And we see all these symbols, we see these rituals, but we do not have a full explanation of all that's going on here. Why do we have to have a scapegoat? Why can we just kill this animal and let it be done? So the why to all these actions is that once Jesus is on the scene, now we can see him living it out. Now we can see him interacting and explaining all these ceremonies in the temple. All we see this greater purpose of God. Let me give you an example. When during the festival of booths, the priest stands in the temple and he's out there. He silently takes this pitcher of water and he pours it out before the congregation. And the only noise in the temple is the sound of this water hitting these stones and cascading down these steps. At that moment of silence, the sound of that water cascading down, what seems so very strange? Like, why are we doing this? What's the purpose behind this? We'll introduce Jesus physically into this moment. And what does he do? What happens? Jesus, the silence is broken. And Jesus stands up and declares loudly, I am the living water of God. Come to me and never thirst again. So what is Jesus saying? The days in the desert were a living example of how each person needs me in them, in their lives. Let me resonate in your life. Let me break, bring refreshment in your life, cleansing and healing. And so the symbolism of the Levitical system of the Old Testament, the crucifixion of Jesus, is here displayed by the scapegoat. So there can be no question about who the scapegoat is. They have the same name. But they're very different people. The priest would lay the sins of the people on the scapegoat. And then they would take the other one who's going to be sacrificed. And they'd lay sins on that one. And that one would go forward and die. And the blood would be shed. And the atonement would be offered. So this Jesus, Son of the Father, is guilty. The sins of the people are upon him. And he will be sacrificed. And I have to wonder about Jesus Barabbas. As he's sitting in that prison, and he's hearing the muffled sounds of Pilate saying these questions to the crowd, he can't quite make out what's being said. But he hears one thing real clearly. Barabbas! Barabbas! And then he hears another phrase, very clearly, muffled sounds. Crucify him! Crucify him! Whoa! I don't like those words coming together if I'm Barabbas, right? But that's what he's hearing. So imagine, he's, he's in the prison. All of a sudden, he hears footsteps coming. And the door, swing, the door swings open. And this big, burly Roman soldier grabs him and jerks him out. And he's thinking, oh, boy, this is it. I'm done. I've won too many murders. Won too many times. It's over. And he walks up. And the custom to release the prisoner. And maybe he remembered that was something that would happen for Abbas. Or maybe he didn't. What happened at Passover. But he's brought up from the jail. And they stand him up there before him. And he's bound. And he's looking at this mob, and he's surprised to hear these words. Free to go. He's set free. He doesn't hear the words, take up your cross, you're going to be crucified. Now, that 
is a choice that God offers us, each person, every day. You're free to go on your own way, or you're free to go and take up your cross and follow me. And for a short while in this life, we get to decide our choice. And that choice will eventually be confirmed after we die. And all those choices will be compiled upon you. And that choice will be eternal damnation or it will be an eternal reward with God. And just like Pilate and Peter and the Pharisees, we are each choosing every day in every situation what we will do with Jesus. So let us pray that we will be empowered with the Holy Spirit to make the right choice the next time that we are forced to choose. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the witness of your scripture and the power of the testimony of the past. And help us to remember um, the failures of others and their successes. And may they empower some boldness and give us a consciousness in those moments to turn to you, to hear you and listen and ask, and then to act on what you tell us to do so that we can be better witnesses for you, so that we can share our faith and your truth with others and that people will say yes to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.